We read the Holy Scriptures this morning in three places to demonstrate the broad biblical foundation of the truth of the Trinity. First, Genesis 1, verses 1 through 5. In the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth, and the earth was without form and void, and darkness was upon the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God moved upon the face of the waters, and God said, Let there be light, and there was light, and God saw the light, that it was good, and God divided the light from the darkness. And God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And the evening and the morning were the first day. We turn now to John chapter 1. And you will hear a very similar sound in the opening verses of John that we just heard in the opening verses of Genesis. John 1 verses 1 through 5. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. All things were made by him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. And the light shineth in darkness, and the darkness comprehended it not. Finally, we turn to Revelation, chapter 1, verses 1 through 5. And here we must direct our attention to the benediction that John pronounces upon the churches and the three persons of the Trinity that are mentioned. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave unto him to show unto his servants things which must shortly come to pass, and he sent and signified it by his angel unto his servant John, who bear record of the word of God and of the testimony of Jesus Christ and of all things that he saw. Blessed is he that readeth, and they that hear the words of this prophecy, and keep those things which are written therein, for the time is at hand. John, to the seven churches which are in Asia, grace be unto you and peace from him which is and which was and which is to come, and from the seven spirits which are before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, who is the faithful witness and the first begotten of the dead and the prince of the kings of the earth, unto him that loved us and washed us from our own sins, in his own blood. We read the word of God that far. We consider the teaching of the Heidelberg Catechism in Lord's Day 8 this morning concerning the truth of the Holy Trinity. That's in the back of the Psalter on page 6. Referring to the articles mentioned in the previous Lord's Day, the 
Apostles' Creed, Lord's Day 8, asks, How are these articles divided? Into three parts. The first is of God the Father and our creation. The second, of God the Son and our redemption. The third, of God the Holy Ghost and our sanctification. Since there is but one only divine essence, why speakest thou of Father, Son, and Holy Ghost? Because God hath so revealed himself in his word that these three distinct persons are the one only true and eternal God. What is necessary for a Christian to believe? That was the question that we considered last time in Lord's Day 7. And the answer that we were given is, all things which God has revealed to us in his word, all things promised to us in the gospel, and all things which are briefly taught to us, in the Articles of the Apostles' Creed. The Articles of the Apostles' Creed are called our Catholic Undoubted Christian Faith by the Heidelberg Catechism. Now what does that mean? When the Catechism says that these articles, which we are going to be considering in the coming weeks in our sermons, are our Catholic undoubted Christian faith, we must not understand that to mean that the Apostles' Creed is a Roman Catholic creed. That's not what is meant by the term Catholic in that phrase. Because the articles of the Apostles' Creed are an ecumenical creed. They are a creed which expresses the faith of all believers throughout all the world and throughout all history in whatever denomination they might be. It is an ecumenical creed. The word Catholic means universal, worldwide, the creed of all true believers. When the Catechism calls these articles our undoubted Christian faith, it means to teach us that there can be no doubt whatsoever that these doctrines are true because God has clearly revealed them to us in his word. The Catechism now asks in this Lord's Day how these articles of the Apostles' Creed can be divided. And the answer is that they can be divided into three parts. The first part is about God the Father and our creation The second part is about God the Son and our redemption. And the third part is about God the Holy Ghost and our sanctification. So the Apostles' Creed, this ecumenical creed, breaks down the essential doctrines of the Christian faith into three sections, according to the lines of the Trinity. The Apostles' Creed teaches us and leads us to the profound, wonderful, distinctively Christian doctrine of the Holy Trinity. 
The word Trinity does not appear anywhere in the Bible. That word was coined by one of the early church fathers in North Africa, a theologian by the name of Tertullian, in approximately the year 200 A.D. He was the first who is known to have used the word Trinity, which has the idea of tripleness, threefoldness. And that word became common to express the Christian doctrine of the Trinity. Nevertheless, although the word Trinity does not appear in the Bible, the truth that is expressed by that word is based securely on the Holy Scriptures and nothing else, as we hope to see. So let's consider this morning the truth of the Holy Trinity. Notice, first of all, the wondrous doctrine. Secondly, the scriptural revelation. And finally, the gospel significance. The wondrous doctrine of the Trinity that fills our hearts with awe is very simple to express. The doctrine is this. God is three in one. God is three persons in one being. That, very simply, is the wondrous doctrine of the Holy Trinity. In the first place, we have to emphasize this morning that God is one in being. There is only one God. The Catechism expresses that this way. There is only one divine essence. There is only one divine being. There are not many gods. Although there are many that are called gods, there are many that are worshipped as gods, there are many that are idols, but they are not true gods. They are vanities. As we sang earlier, the gods of men's imaginations are made of gold and silver and wood and stone, but they are not true and living gods. There is only one true and living God. There are many human beings, millions upon millions of human beings. There are millions and millions of angelic beings. There are millions of other living beings, but there is only one divine being. Only one. And let that be emphatically drilled into our hearts this morning. There is only one God. There is only one who can be worshipped as God. One who ought to be obeyed as God. One who possesses all that is meant by the word God. What do we mean by that word God? What do we mean when we say there's only one? We mean there is only one being who has always existed, who has never been created, who has no creator, but who is himself the creator of all things. We mean there is only one being who needs no other being to uphold his own being and his own existence, but who is himself the everlasting rock, foundation, and fountain of his own existence, and who is the fountain of the being and existence of all other things that exist. There is only one. 
There is only one who himself possesses all power and might and dominion. There is only one who is able to create and give life. There is only one who is the highest good and the overflowing fountain of all good. There is only one who possesses all of the glorious virtues that are known to man and who possesses them in infinite measure, indeed without any measure and without any spot, stain, or darkness. There is only one who is the infinite glorious light who possesses immortality and life in himself and is the fountain of life. There is only one who has created the heavens and the earth and all things that they contain. There is only one God who by his sovereign power carries out his will in all of creation, who has perfect knowledge of everything that will come to pass, and who is able by his sovereignty to carry out his will, to realize his plans for all of his creation. There's only one who is able to save, to redeem our souls from sin and death and hell, and to give us everlasting life. There's only one God. There's only one who is worthy of our full, heartfelt love and devotion, our obedience, our trust and confidence. There's only one who is worthy of sincere praise and worship, of prayer. There's only one God to whom we pray. We don't pray to many gods. We don't obey many gods. We don't trust in many gods, but one God. There's only one who is able to give rest to our restless hearts and to satisfy our longing souls. There's only one God. And the Catechism then asks us, since that is true, and we all know that to be true as Christians, Why then do we speak of Father, Son, and Holy Ghost? Why do we speak of these three distinct individuals as if each of them is God? If we only believe, if we only obey, if we only serve one God. Are you able to give an answer to that question in your own words? Are you able to answer that question if someone who is not a believer would ask you? Why is it that you Christians say that you believe in one God, but you also worship the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit? Can you explain that? The Catechism helps us to understand it so that we can explain it as well. The explanation is very simple. Even a child can understand it, and yet it is extremely profound and mysterious and beyond our ability to fully comprehend. God is three in one. God is three persons in one being. God is one being, but he is not one person. He is one being, but he is three persons. He is three persons in one being. I did not say that there are three gods. I must never say that. 
You must never say that. There are not three gods. There is one God, but there are three persons in the one God. There are three, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. If we look again at human creatures, we see that there are millions and millions of human beings. But if you look at each human being, you find only one person in that human being. If you look at the angels, you find there are millions and millions of angelic beings. But if you look at each one of them, there's only one person in each angel and in each demon. But if you look at God, you find one divine being. And yet, in the one divine being, three persons. There is nothing and there is no one like unto God. Three persons in one being. Three who are distinct from each other. Three individuals who are conscious of themselves as different, as distinct from the other individuals. The Father is not the Son or the Spirit. The Son is not the Father or the Spirit. The Spirit is not the Father or the Son. Each is distinct from the other, an individual person. A person who knows himself, who is conscious of himself in distinction from the others and who lives and dwells and exists with the other persons within the Godhead, within the being of God. There are three in God who think the thoughts of God through the mind of God, with the counsel of God. There are three individuals who speak the words of God to us. There are three individuals within God who perform the works of God. Creation, redemption, and sanctification each of them taking the lead in one of those works, but all of them performing those works together through the divine nature. Three persons in one God. One God in three persons is the wondrous doctrine of the Trinity. Now we know from the scriptures that each of those persons has a distinct property and is different from the others in certain ways. And yet, they are all the same as well. They are the same in this, that they all possess the whole of the Godhead. We may not draw a diagram of the Trinity as if the Father possesses a part, the Son possesses a part, and the Spirit possesses a part. All of them possess the whole of the Godhead. All of them is fully and truly God. All three persons has always existed with the other persons. None of them has any beginning, and none of them has any end. Together, they are the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, the first and the last. And they are co-equal. None of them is greater than the other. None of them is higher ranked than the other, but they are all equal to each other within the Godhead. And yet, they are different. Because the Father begets the Son. And the Son is begotten by the Father. And the Holy Spirit proceeds from the Father and the Son. And these actions and relations do not mean that the Father existed first, and then he begot the Son, and the Son existed second, 
and then he breathed forth the Spirit so that the Spirit came into existence in the third place. Nor does it mean that the Father is greatest and the Son is next and the Spirit is last. Because these relations and these actions are eternal. They are essential within the being of God and they are constant. The Father is always begetting the Son. And the Son is always begotten by the Father. And the Father always breathes out the Spirit. And the Son always breathes forth the Spirit. This is the revelation of our wondrous triune God. He is a wondrous, glorious, awesome God. He is a God of life and communion and love within himself since all eternity. He is not a lonely God, not a solitary person dwelling by himself before the foundation of the world, but he is a Father and Son and Spirit dwelling together within himself in perfect love and life and fellowship. A father begetting and dwelling with his son whom he loves. A son pressing into the bosom of his father who begets him and breathing forth the spirit, communing with each other as the eternal, holy, divine, triune family. That's the wondrous doctrine of the Holy Trinity. Now, on what basis may we describe God this way? On what basis may I preach to you this morning that this is who God is and this is what God is like? Only on the basis of the scriptural revelation, the revelation of God himself to us in the Holy Scriptures. We do not believe, and I do not preach to you, this doctrine of the Trinity this morning merely because the church tells you so. And you must simply believe what the church says because the church says it. That is the view of the Roman church, the church that is headquartered in Rome, Italy. The view of that church is that You must believe the doctrine of the Holy Trinity because we say so. Now that church does still to this day teach the doctrine of the Holy Trinity. But they teach it on the basis of the authority of the church rather than the authority of Scripture alone. They say that you must believe this this truth, and it is a truth, simply because we say so. But with the Reformation, there was a break from Rome in this respect. And there was the setting down of this principle. All of the truth rests upon the sole authority of Scripture, of the Bible. The reason we believe this truth is because the church tells us so on the basis of the Bible, on the sole authority of Scripture. Some others think that they can believe the doctrine of the Trinity on the basis of Scripture and general revelation in the creation around us. They think that they see what are sometimes called vestiges of the Trinity in the creation. For example, the three-leaf clover. In the ancient church, 
as they went forth doing missionary work into Europe, they discovered these three-leaf clovers growing, for example, in Ireland. What an amazing creature, this little tender plant, one plant, and yet with three leaves of equal and identical shape. And they saw in that little three-leaf clover a vestige of the Trinity. They saw in that a reflection of the Trinity. If this world was created by a triune God, then may we not expect to see footprints of the Trinity walking through the creation itself? Ought we not to see and to expect some reflections of the Trinity in nature? Others have pointed out the wonder that we live in one cosmos, one universe, not a multiverse, but one universe. And yet that one cosmos takes on three different modes, space, time, and matter. The one universe comes in three different modes. And each of those three modes also comes in three different modes. Space can be broken down into three dimensions of height and width and length. Time can be viewed in three different aspects of past, present, and future. And matter comes in three different states of solid, liquid, and gas. And so they see in these things vestiges of the Trinity, footprints of the triune God in the creation itself. The triune God made this world. Why do we see all these triads, all of these sets of three throughout the creation? Well, because it was created by a triune God. Now, whatever you might think about those things, what must be understood this morning emphatically is that the reason we can and must and do believe the doctrine of the Trinity is because Scripture teaches us that doctrine. Scripture reveals to us the mystery of the Trinity. And if those vestiges in the creation confirm that doctrine, okay. But we do not rest our doctrine on those things. The doctrine arises out of the Bible. We read earlier this morning from Genesis chapter 1. In the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. And the earth was without form and void, and darkness was upon the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God moved upon the face of the waters, and God said, let there be light. Already in those opening verses of Scripture, we see God revealing himself to us as one God, and yet also hints of the trinity of persons. God reveals himself to us as one God in those opening verses. We do not read of many gods. We do not read of a a pantheon of gods who cooperated in the creation of the universe, but we read of one God who created the heavens and the earth. The opening verse of Scripture preaches the one true and living God to us, and there is no other. And yet there is an unmistakable hint of the trinity of persons in these opening verses. And that hint of the trinity comes out when you consider the original Hebrew of the passage. 
The Hebrew word for God in the opening verse of Scripture is Elohim. And that Hebrew word is the plural form of the word El. The Hebrew word El is a singular word that means God. And we find that word in Scripture as well. But in this opening verse, we find the word Elohim. And we find that word throughout the Scriptures as well. The plural form of the name God. But this is the interesting thing. The verb created is in the singular form. How are we to translate that? God's created? We can't translate it that way because the verb is in the singular. And yet the noun is in the plural. So we have a plural noun. God, Elohim, God's created. Singular. One God. One God. But in some sense, there is a plurality in God. And the Jews have always explained that away by saying this plural noun simply expresses the majesty of God and the greatness of God. It is a plural of majesty and greatness. But that does not do justice to the plural form of the word. God's created the heavens and the earth. And as we proceed through the passage of Genesis 1, we see other hints of the trinity of persons. We have God, the one God, creating. But then, in the very next verse, we read of the Spirit of God moving on the face of the deep. And in the next verse, we hear God speaking his word so that the word goes forth and creates. God, Spirit, and the word. And then, later in the chapter, We hear God saying, let us make man in our image and after our likeness. Let us make man? If God is one, then God cannot speak to himself. He cannot speak within himself. But the scriptures present God in the very opening chapter as speaking to himself, within himself. Let us make man. One God, and yet, Hints of threeness. The rest of the Old Testament emphatically teaches that there is only one divine essence and yet leads us gradually, step by step, to the New Testament light of the Trinity. God spoke to Moses from the burning bush in Mount Sinai when he was going to send Moses into Egypt to deliver his people out of the clutches of Pharaoh, God told Moses who he was. He told Moses his name. He said, this is my name. I am that I am. That's the name you should speak to the children of Israel. Tell them, I am sent you. That word reveals unmistakably that there is one God He says, I am, and there is no other God. I exist eternally. I had no beginning, and I have no end. I sustain myself, my own existence. I am the fountain and foundation of my own being. I am that I am, and there is no other. But then God said, Tell Aaron to bless the children of Israel using my name three times. 
And when Moses, when Aaron blesses the children of Israel, he should put up his hands and say, The Lord bless thee and keep thee. The Lord make his face shine upon thee. And the Lord be gracious unto thee. Three times he said to pronounce his name in blessing upon his people. Moses emphatically taught the children of Israel in Deuteronomy 6, the great creed of the Old Testament. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord. And thou shalt love the Lord your God with all your heart and mind and strength. He is one. Children of Israel, there is one God. Don't worship the gods of the heathen. They are not true gods. But then throughout the history of the children of Israel, we find again and again in the history that God manifests himself in three ways. He manifests himself as the Lord Jehovah of hosts, the great God of heaven and earth who rules over all. But he also manifests himself as the angel of Jehovah. Among all the angels that came and spoke to man, there was one great angel known as the angel of Jehovah. And the words that he spoke and the actions he performed revealed that he was a manifestation of God himself. But then thirdly, The Spirit of Jehovah is found throughout the Old Testament, moving, working, speaking, inspiring, and doing the works of God. Think of the great prophet Isaiah. Living in the days of Ahaz, Hezekiah, and Manasseh, days when the children of Judah worshipped all kinds of idols. And Isaiah thundered to the children of Israel and to the inhabitants of Jerusalem. There is one God. There is one Lord. There is one Savior. Worship the Lord your God and worship no other God. There is no other beside him. And yet, when Isaiah was given a magnificent vision of God himself sitting on his throne, high and lifted up, surrounded by the angels of heaven, In Isaiah chapter 6, he sees the great cherubim and seraphim flying about the throne of God and crying out day and night, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. Not once holy, not twice holy, but thrice holy. Why do they say it three times? Why do they cease not day and night to proclaim Three times, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. All of this scriptural revelation leads us gradually more and more to the New Testament where we find the glorious light shining in great clarity when God sent forth his only begotten Son into the world and then poured out the Holy Spirit on his church, he revealed most clearly of all the truth of the Trinity. We read in John chapter 1, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. All things were made by him, and without him was not anything made that was made. And later in the chapter, John says, This Word became flesh, and dwelt among us. And we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, 
full of grace and truth, Jesus. John is teaching us here that there is one God. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. That's the one God. And yet, he goes on to say that this Word was in the beginning with God, and this Word was God. And that it was through this Word, who is God, that all things were created, and without him was not anything made that was made. In the early church, when the struggle was on for the doctrine of the Trinity, many, many interpretations were given to this first chapter of John. A man by the name of Arius rose up in the church in Alexandria, Egypt, and he explained this passage in John chapter 1 in a way that twisted and perverted the true meaning He said that there is only one God, and he is one person. But the one God created the Word just before he created the rest of the universe. And then, through the Word and through the Spirit that he also created, he also created the universe. So that Arius went around saying, there was a time when the Son of God was not. There was a time when the Holy Spirit was not. There was a time when they did not yet exist. Only the Father is eternal. But the early church rejected that as a heresy. We now know it as the heresy of Arianism. And the Holy Spirit himself guided the church at the great council of Nicaea in the year 325 A.D., to set forth in the Nicene Creed the truth that the Son of God is equal with the Father. And later, in 381 A.D., in the Council of Constantinople, to set forth the truth that the Holy Spirit, too, is one with God the Father and God the Son. The Father, Son, and Spirit have always existed. This truth was believed and taught by the church, not through philosophical reasoning, but through study of the scriptures. When you read the scriptures, you find a Jesus who comes into the world and claims to be one with the Father, who says, I and the Father are one, who says, before Abraham existed, I existed, who says, Before the foundation of the world, I was with the Father, and I had the glory of the Father with the Father. We find a Jesus who goes about stilling the storms and walking on the waters of the sea and healing the sick and casting out demons and demonstrating the power of God and all the while claiming to be God and allowing men to worship him as God. Who is this Jesus? And who is this Holy Spirit whom Jesus says will come, whom he will send to us from the Father, the Comforter, the Spirit of truth, who will guide us into all the truth, who will abide with us and dwell with us and save us? And then, of course, after his death and resurrection and before his ascension into heaven, the last word that he gave to his disciples was, Go ye into all the world and preach the gospel to all creatures, 
and baptize them who believe in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Not just in the name of the Father, not just in the name of the Son, not just in the name of the Holy Spirit, but in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Why? Because these three distinct persons are the one true and eternal God. And then we read the rest of the New Testament scriptures and we find that the apostles, Peter, John, James, Paul, set forth to the divinity of Father, Son, and Spirit. And they pronounce their benediction on the church like Aaron in the Old Testament in a threefold manner. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God the Father and the communion of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Or as we find it in Revelation 1, grace be unto you and peace from him which is and which was and which is to come, God the Father, and from the seven spirits which are before his throne, representing the Holy Spirit, and from Jesus Christ, the Son, who is the faithful witness and the first begotten of the dead, the prince of the kings of the earth, unto him that loved us and washed us from our sins in his own blood. That brings us finally to the gospel significance of this glorious truth of the Trinity. This is not just some abstract doctrine that we must believe. But here we have the gospel. The gospel comes to us from the triune God. It is a message of the triune God about what the triune God has done, is doing, and will do for our salvation. Listen. John 3.16 For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Galatians 4, 4 through 6. But when the fullness of the time was come, God sent forth his Son, made of a woman, made under the law, to redeem them that were under the law, that we might receive the adoption of sons. And because ye are sons, God hath sent forth the Spirit of his Son into your hearts, crying, Abba, Father. The truth of the Trinity is the truth of the gospel. God, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, before the foundation of the world, loved the world that they were going to create. And loved the world so much that together they willed and determined to send forth the Son to come into the world and to become a man and to give his life on the accursed tree of the cross so that through his sacrifice we too might become the sons and daughters of God. The Father, Son, and Holy Spirit who eternally dwell together as the family of the Trinity in blessed, sweet covenant fellowship willed and determined 
to reveal that fellowship, to share that fellowship with us. To send the Son into the world, to shed his blood on the cross, to reconcile us to God, and to draw us into his family, to make us his sons and his daughters, to seat us around his table, to dine with him for all eternity as the children of the living God in living fellowship. And that's not all. The Father, Son, and Holy Spirit also determined to send forth the Spirit, to pour out the Holy Spirit on the church so that God would take up his dwelling place inside our hearts and unite us to himself in the bond of faith and communion and already begin to dwell with us right now by faith through the Holy Spirit, to give us the blessed assurance to witness with our spirit that we are the children of God so that we begin and are able to cry out, Abba, Father. That's the gospel of the Trinity. That's the good news. Therefore, let us strive to live in joyful thankfulness to God for what he has done, and particularly now this application. Let us live in joyful thankfulness to God within our families. God is the first family. He is the Father dwelling with his Son, whom he has begotten and whom he eternally begets, He is the Father breathing the spirit of love to his Son and the Son breathing that spirit to his Father so that they commune with each other in peace, in fellowship, in love. God has created the family. When he created Adam and Eve in the beginning and told them to be fruitful and multiply, And when he tells us the same, so that we bring forth children and we have a family, God's purpose with that family is that we will be a reflection of himself. That our families will be knit together in oneness of mind, just as the Father, Son, and Spirit. That we will be joined together in peace, fellowship, and love, that our families will not be characterized by quarreling and bickering and pride and arrogance, that our families will not be characterized by abuse, by disobedience and rebellion, that our families will be units of father and mother, sons and daughters, dwelling together in oneness, in peace, in joy, in love. Parents fulfilling their duties to their children in love. Children honoring their parents in love. And finally, beloved, as we live in joyful thankfulness to God in our families, as parents, let us raise our children with a view to sending them forth into the world when they become adults as bright and shining witnesses of our triune God. God sent forth his Son 
God sent forth his spirit into the world. We are to raise our children, not with the mentality of keeping them close to us, but with the mentality of sending them into the world. That some of them will even become pastors, preachers, missionaries, and may even travel to the nations to bring the gospel far away. But that all of them, as mothers and fathers, husbands and wives, engineers, accountants, truck drivers, builders, plumbers, that they will be witnesses of our triune God in every sphere of life. Jesus said to his Father in John 17, verse 18, As thou hast sent me into the world, even so have I sent them into the world. Then let us shine as lights, speaking of these wonderful works of God, until the great day when he takes us into glory. As we read in Revelation 4, verses 8 through 11, when we will join that great multitude of saints and angels before the throne of God and unite our voices to theirs, singing, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, which was and is and is to come. Thou art worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power. Amen. Our gracious God and Father, we give all praise and glory unto thee. For thou art worthy. Thou art God and there is none else. And we give thanks to thee for the glorious, wondrous truth that we have learned. That warms our hearts as we know thee, as thou truly art. Grant, Father, that we might grow in our faith, that we might grow in love, that we might grow in the life that we live in our families, that we live in thankfulness to thee. And in joyful thankfulness, we strive to put away all things which disrupt our family units and rather dwell as thou dost dwell in peace and unity. 